Welcome back once again to Pros and Cons. It's the show where I descend into the literary equivalent of a poorly regulated turn-of-the-century coal mine for your entertainment. I'm Rob, and today we're doing chapters 12, 13, and 14 of Riverdale the Day Before, a prequel young adult Riverdale tie-in novel by Nicole Ostow. So without further ado, let's go down this shaft. And that sounds dirty, but I'm just forging ahead. Chapter 12, Archie. Archie daydreams his way through a shift at Andrew's construction, musing about team loyalty while observing that Dilton Doily and his adventure scouts are riding bicycles loaded down with survival gear out into the woods, remarking that he has that same kind of bond with the bulldogs, but only in theory. He then worries that the dread he feels about the team finding out about the plastic fork incident from earlier and demanding a prank retaliation of some kind, and also his lack of desire to participate in such a retaliation, may mean something bad about the person that he's becoming. Ah, season one Archie. Remember when Archie, like, acted as though he had some level of concern whether the things he did were right or wrong and wasn't a weird fascist bootlicker? Those, my friends, were the days. A co-worker points out that Archie has been standing statue still, staring into space for a full ten minutes, and that Fred wants to talk to him. Fred first offers him lunch, and while the food from Pops is gone, they still, for some reason, have tuna sandwiches from the Greendale Deli. Now, it's worthy of note that Greendale is the setting of The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina on Netflix, a fantasy show with magic and the devil. But even if we're going strictly by Archie and not imagining the true shared universe, Greendale is still haunted as hell, full of Shoggoth boxes and Tony Todd cameos, and it seems just a bit extreme to drive to another town for tuna sandwiches unless you specifically desire a haunted sandwich, and Fred Andrews just doesn't seem like the type to me. Further self-flagellation about loyalty, the concept of loyalty follows as Archie realizes that he has to lie to his dad about his holiday plans, and remembers that he double-booked over his and Jughead's plans as well. He then goes on to use hanging out with Jughead as his cover story. Fred lightly teases Archie about Betty's obvious crush on him, which twists the knife further. Then the conversation takes a really weird turn just in terms of his manner of speaking when he points out that if Betty isn't the one, there must be someone, saying, and I quote, I can't imagine you're just sitting up there in your bedroom playing video games all alone, like a monk. Okay. Fred. First off, what are we actually implying? That Archie's sneaking a girl into his room? Or like, honking it, imagining some non-Betty girl? But I'm, I'm burying the lead. Again, because Fred is coming at us with some very exciting ecumenical news. There is at least one order of monks who primarily play single-player video games. Or, I suppose, play video games online, but from separate rooms. Crucially, they stay alone in a room playing video games. This supposed order of St. Letius could be the terror of the esports scene. They have literally no distractions and are a brotherhood who already have team housing. And 
possibly the mentorship and assistance of the omniscient creator of the universe, depending on one's beliefs. This is significant. The question is, with the self-imposed solitude of their play sessions, can their monastic discipline train their instincts to anticipate other team members' needs and tactical evolution over the course of a game as it develops? Because... If not, they have to stick to one-on-one -on -one affairs such as StarCraft, fighting games, and the like. But if this is within their grasp, the sky's the fucking limit, and the League of Legends prize pool is about to be a charitable donation. I should note that this monastic esports digression hit me all at once, mid-sentence, like a ton of bricks. So it bears mentioning that Fred's next sentence actually clarifies a bit what he's talking about. Archie has been sneaking out at night, and Fred knows about it. Fred alludes to Archie that there may be some problem with FP, and that Jughead could really use a friend right about now, so it's good that the two of them are hanging out. Just another dick kick for Archie uh, in this chapter, why not? We then close the chapter with, and please get your puke buckets ready, a text exchange between Grundy and a student named Ben, who she's clearly also having statutory rendezvous with. She blows him off because she has plans for the fourth already okay chapter 13 betty we start with a betty penned piece on veronica lodge among the standard she is rich and pretty fluff we do get a rumor that she once bought out an entire shoe section at Saks so that nobody else could sport the same shoes as her. And an aside by Betty wondering if Veronica has never heard of online shopping. This is blatant character assassination. Awareness of brands and the machinery of consumerism is Veronica's entire character at this point, and the assertion that any teenager, let alone Veronica McFucking Lodge, somehow doesn't know that you can buy shoes on the internet is frankly absurd and offensive. Do better, Mikola Astow. We then get the director's commentary on this piece in progress via Betty's diary, where she mentions how awful Veronica sounds, describing her as, quote, a benevolent dictator who thought her looks and her wealth entitled her to run roughshod over other people's lives, wants, dreams. I have a question for Betty. What does a malicious dictator do if what you have just described counts as benevolence? Words. I think, anyway, have meanings, but I will be further challenged in this regard as this batch of chapters progresses. Apparently there are reasonably credible rumors that Veronica once forced a girl at school to drink gutter water. Which, yikes. Okay, I mean, she was apparently kind of like an edgy character before we see her in the show. It's a... Making her a horrific bully is certainly a choice. Betty then details myriad instances of celebrity outings and conspicuous consumption, giving a sort of Veronica chapter away from home. Mercifully, she redirects her journaling pen to the mystery of the planted fashion closet items, wondering why the actual fuck Cleo, the receptionist, would want to see her destroyed. She thinks that maybe she's jealous of Betty getting a byline, but if Cleo has writing aspirations, she's been playing that close to the chest. 
Betty decides to snoop around Cleo's workspace when she leaves her desk, and when she does, she takes a picture of Cleo's work ID for no reason. Like, she even says she doesn't know why she does it in the narration. She then no-sells the following observation, which both impresses and horrifies me. Quote, Her work ID was there, too. The sharp angles of her cheekbones staring ahead at the camera intently. Cleo, the receptionist at Hello Giggles, is an alien with some sort of sight organ located in her cheekbones. Hello Giggles stole an alien receptionist from Area 51 before it was cool. Naruto running, it turns out, actually works! Betty then nearly gets caught by Cleo, and the exchange they have leaves considerable ambiguity about whether Cleo saw her snooping for sure or not. Worth noting is that in seven pages and change, Betty mentions Nancy Drew three times. Maybe this isn't worth its own counter, but we'll see how fiercely this dead horse is beaten in the coming chapters. We then cut to an email from Principal Weatherby to the football team, asking them to clean up the field and reminding them that retaliatory pranks are against the rules. That seems just really shitty to me. I mean, it's shitty that janitors or groundskeepers or whoever would need to clean up this mess, but why the fuck would you task the cleanup to children who have nothing to do with it? But then, Weatherby has always seemed pretty fast and loose with his ridiculous mandates, so I guess we are technically in character. Reggie then emails his dogs, according to the email, and yes, that is a D-A-W-G, but fortunately with an S at the end instead of a Z, so the hope that there's a god may still be alive. Basically, Reggie says, fuck the police, let's meet up after the movie at the Twilight tonight and discuss who's getting fucked up over this plastic fork atrocity. Archie texts Reggie back to bow out, and Reggie is mightily displeased. Archie stands his ground, but Reggie remarks that Archie needs to figure his shit out regarding loyalty before the season starts up, so loyalty, dead horse-wise, has been beaten to roughly breakfast spread texture by this point. But it's time for chapter 14, Jughead. Jughead arrives on the Andrews construction site, and he's very, very angry. It's not clear if it's Archie's avoidance, something with FP, a bit of both, or something else entirely that motivates this anger. We're inside Jughead's head, hearing about Quote, this rage, black and hot, like my chest was full of tar. But he spends a long time not actually saying internally what he's mad about. And there wasn't, that I recall, a definitive, this is what I'm angry about at the end of the last chapter, or even that he was angry. He just needed to go to the construction site all of a sudden, like, I must go, my planet needs me. I, okay. We get a cringy bit where he segues off into remembering Pop's Bonnie and Clyde story from earlier and all of Dilton Doily's baleful prognostications, and he remembers a blood moon in quotes and italics. He then makes an observation about his blood being in a state of boiling, which, okay, blood moon, my blood is boiling, 
as a coherent connection of thought goes, there's a lot of reaching going on there, but the specific wording is just so weird. Here's the quote. And now my blood was bubbling inside me, a fury-fueled pact. Ostow, blood pacts are a thing that I assume you have heard of, but blood itself cannot be a pact, as this sentence suggests. Nor can pacts be blood. International treaties, or more colloquially, covenants or formal agreements, cannot take the place of blood, and are not recommended by doctors for your circulatory needs. Anyway, Jughead now, for the first time, feels like there really may be something evil or accursed at the heart of Riverdale. Never you mind his having described Riverdale as a rat king of Lynch-esque melodramas and talking about people too horrified to venture outside during the midnight fucking pancake banquet on the first page of this very book. Jughead then bursts into Fred's trailer, and his black, soul-destroying rage instantly becomes him just sort of mumbling that he's not seen much of Archie lately, which, while technically is a Jughead-as-fuck move to be really, really uh, up your own ass about stuff in your own monologue, but then just kind of mumbling, it seems pretty tonally dissonant with the start of this chapter. Uh, and to make matters worse, Fred then spends at least half a page tormenting Jughead with outdated slang, which Jughead plays along with because, you know, he's angry enough to burn down a puppy orphanage, and groaning at dad jokes and not getting into whatever his fucking point is goes right along with that. It's really chocolate and peanut butter, isn't it? Fred fishes for information about what Archie is up to, and while Jughead catches some of Archie's lies and suspects that his proposed trip to Centerville is actually just going to end up Archie's alibi, he plays dumb and even covers for Archie out of a desire to not be a narc. The disappointing part of all this is that Jughead's not in the gang yet, so there weren't like five clumsy snake metaphors about this, which I would have enjoyed. Jughead then gets to the fucking point and asks where his dad is. And he gets the, yeah, I was afraid of that styled news that FP hasn't been around, which rapidly becomes the, your dad's an alcoholic, I had to fire him, and he's the leader of the local gang kind of news. We then get texts between Nick St. Clair, Annie, and Cam, who are gloating about the upcoming downfall of the lodges, because why not just do this again, I guess? We do get some interesting stuff here, though. Nick points out that Hiram's the only white-collar criminal he's ever heard of with widely rumored ties to the mob, making Hiram like every kind of supervillain rolled into one, and wonders if anything will actually stick to the seemingly invincible Hiram Lodge. Now, Nick's tiny imagination and lack of comic book exposure notwithstanding, one wonders whether Galactus is more of a white-collar criminal or a mobster, but... The payoff of this supervillain concept comes in Annie's very next text, saying, Even supervillains have their kryptonite. That's... <sighs> wow. Kryptonite. Bane of noted supervillain, Superman. <laughs> 
Okay, so unless the author is doing a positively Machiavellian dunk on Zack Snyder's awful take on Superman, this is some inexcusably dumb writing that even the dumbest possible teenager is too smart to say. But, yeah, it's like three more pages of text messages doing the exact same thing the other text messages were doing earlier. And that's it, sadly, for this batch of chapters, which ends on a hell of a whimper. But next episode, we close out afternoon and get one chapter into evening. So maybe something will happen. Probably not. But I will do a fair bit of shouting and pedantry Anyway, in an attempt to make this worth your time. (sighs) See you next episode, folks.